It is our fourth annual holiday special. Before we dive into the preview, let me doff my cap and wish all of our great VOA Audio listeners worldwide a very Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, enjoy the holiday season. I said it a few weeks ago, I'll say it again, this program would be nothing without its listeners. You are the fuel that drives this machine. Have a very Merry Christmas, a Happy Hanukkah. And get ready to listen to one of the very best editions of BOA Audio we've ever produced. Now I know I'm the king of hyperbole here at the beginning of the program. I put over people's stuff left and right. I put over books that I enjoy quite hugely. And I put over the big episodes like they are the second coming. But this time, my friends, the hyperbole is entirely justified. As I said, one of the very best episodes of BOA Audio ever It just seems like the holiday special keeps getting better every year, and this one we really hit one out of the park. You know the guest, of course. He is the holiday tradition here on BOA Audio, the legendary father of modern-day ufology, Stanton Friedman. And what you're going to hear this week is a jam-packed interview with Stan Friedman. We hit nearly 20 questions covering an amazing range of topics. If I listed them all here right now, it would take forever. Let me just go through some of them. The Mysterious Lost Blue Book Text, Project Blue Book Special Report Number 13, Reflections on James E. McDonald and J. Allen Hynek, Stan's Feud with Isaac Asimov, The Nuclear Rocket Industry, and a lot of big-picture analysis on ufology in terms of public relations, media, and Roswell. Then, that's just the first half of the show. On top of all that, something that folks who have been consistently listening to the end of the show would know by now we turn the questioning over to the members of the official BOA forum, the USofE.com. Kind of like my holiday gift to them. Everybody got the chance to ask Stan Friedman one question, and then I compiled the questions and brought them to Stan here for the holiday special. For those of you folks who are listening and saying, what the hell, I didn't know anything about this, you got to listen to the end of the program. That's where we spice things up, add some surprises, and open up opportunities for the great BOA audio listeners who stick around through the duration. Anyway, let me run down some of the insights we'll be getting from Stan via the USofE.com members' contributions. We're going to find out about Roswell and Kevin Randall, the connection between UFOs and altered consciousness, ufology in a post-disclosure world, UFOs in the media, the best abduction case ever, Paul Kimball, sabermetrics in baseball, the 1969 Sverdlovsky UFO crash, Philip Corso, the journal article Sovereignty in the UFO, Project Blue Book Special Report Number 14, and speculating on where the U.S. would be in space if it had kept going to the moon. Just a jam-packed conversation here with Stan Friedman. When I hung up the phone after this episode, I knew that it was immediately going into the classics section of BOA Audio. It is absolutely one of my favorite interviews that I've ever done, and I'm just thrilled about it and looking forward to hearing what you think about the fourth annual BOA Audio Holiday Special with the legendary Stanton Friedman. 
For those of you who are unfamiliar with Stanton Friedman, let me give you a little bit of background on him. Stanton T. Friedman received BS and MS degrees in physics from the University of Chicago in 1955 and 1956. He was employed for 14 years as a nuclear physicist for such companies as GE, GM, Westinghouse, TRW Systems, Aerojet General Nucleonics, and McDonnell Douglas on such advanced, classified, and eventually canceled projects such as nuclear aircraft, fission and fusion rockets, and nuclear power plants in space. He has provided written testimony to congressional hearings, appeared twice at the UN, and has been a pioneer in many aspects of ufology, including Roswell, Majestic 12, the Betty Hill Marjorie Fish star map work, analysis of the Delphos Kansas physical trace case, crashed saucers, flying saucer technology, and challenges to the SETI, silly effort to investigate cultists. He is the author of the books Top Secret Magic and Crash at Corona, the definitive study of the Roswell incident. He's the co-author of Captured, about the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case, and recently penned his magnum opus, which we'll be discussing tonight, Flying Saucers and Science. His website is www.stantonfriedman.com, S-T-A-N-T-O-N-F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N.com. Check it out. Without any further ado, it's time to rock and roll, my friends. This interview was recorded on December 11th, 2008. The father of modern-day ufology, Stanton Friedman, on the fourth annual BOA Audio Holiday Special. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the fourth annual BOA Audio Holiday Special. I'm just super excited. It is uh, so close to the holidays, and it's going to be perfect timing here, because by the time you're listening to this, it's going to be the last Sunday before Christmas, and December 21st at sundown, the start of Hanukkah, so it's the perfect timing for the holiday special. And, of course, you know who the guest is. He's on every year for the holiday special. He's a staple of this program. The very first real interview that I ever did was with Stan Friedman. If he had blown me off, this program probably never would have even happened, so we owe him a huge debt. Uh, he's the author of the new book. It's been out for about six months, but it's still new, and there's plenty of time to get it for the holiday season. Flying Saucers and Science. A Scientist Investigates the Mystery of UFOs. Unbelievably outstanding book. It is just amazing. Well, the whole book is required reading, let's say, for anybody who's a serious student of ufology. And the first two chapters should be able to be recited by memory to anyone who really is serious about UFOs. I mean, the subtitle of the book should be How to Win an Argument with Your Obnoxious Cousin at the Christmas Party Who is a UFO Skeptic, because uh, you read the first couple chapters of this book, and you'll be able to blow him away and shut him up for the rest of the holiday, which is always a good thing, right? He's Stan Friedman. He's a Hall of Famer. He's a first-class Hall of Famer. When they build the UFO Hall of Fame, he's going to need his own wing. He's a, just an ultimate legend in the world of ufology, and it's great to have him here for the holiday special. As you can tell, folks, I'm thrilled. Welcome back to the program, Stan. Thanks for coming back. Glad to be on again. I really like that introduction. Wow, I'm impressed. I want to listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. I've been going over it in my head here, uh, driving around before we taped the show, so I knew what I wanted to say here for the holiday show. Now, as I said, I've heard you do just a million interviews. I've, this is my fifth time I've spoken to you and. Flying Saucers and Science, your magnum opus, a uh, fantastic book. I know you've gone over a lot of the material before in the past, and uh, I'm sure during the myriad of interviews you've done to promote the book. So I tried to pick some nuggets out of this that really surprised me or took me aback and, and that I learned something from that I didn't think I was going to learn because I've heard so much from you. One of the first things I wanted to talk to you about is uh, something that I had never even thought of, and this is, we've all heard about Project Blue Book Special Report number 14, which is really 
part of the foundation for your whole career as a ufologist. But what I was really surprised to learn is about this Project Blue Book Special Report number 13, which is apparently uh, a lost text, if you will, probably classified, but we don't really know. I'm starting to think of it now. Maybe uh, you can tell me if it's the holy grail of ufology that's missing. And you say that you've talked to a couple people who have seen it in classified files. And I'm going to quote you here. Nobody I've spoken with has a copy of it. And you've been around 50 years. You've spoken with everybody. So uh, if it was out there, you'd know about it. Uh, I would think so, although I must add that uh, what surprised me when I first looked at Blue Book Special Report 14 was that it hadn't been mentioned in the 15 books that I had read. Uh, prior to finding that just by accident at the University of California Berkeley Library. So uh, I keep wondering ever since then, really, uh, why didn't any of those books talk about it? I guess because it was well covered up. The title wasn't in the press release that got wide distribution. The Air Force played it cagey, and they got away with it. It's a remarkable bit of deception. The press release uh, saying, you know, even the unknown 3% could have been identified as conventional phenomena or illusions if more complete observational data had been available. Uh, a total lie. And they got away with it. And, you know, 50 years later, they're still trying to get away with it. Yeah, absolutely. That's the truth. Now, what about the 13, though? Have well, you looked okay. for it? Have you tried to find it? I mean, what's the well, story? Well, sure. Sure. I've been back at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. I've been at Battelle Memorial Institute, which did Special Report 14. Although their title, their name isn't on the report and it isn't in the press release, but I did determine that it was done there. Uh, and I have not been able to find it at all, but as I point out in uh, Flying Saucers and Science, uh, we have reports 1 through 12. Now, it, to expect that uh, the government's going to skip a number, and I've heard some of the craziest explanation, hey, 13, you know, they thought that would be bad luck. What's that <laughs> You know, uh, they they don't put number 13 on some floors in hotels because people are superstitious. I mean, that's pretty stupid. Um, and the thing is that I had my own experience with the very same people, the Foreign Technology Division of the Air Force, uh, well, the name has changed, Air Technical Intelligence Center, Aerospace Technical Intelligence Center, and there's a whole new one, National Security Intelligence. It's another name, but it doesn't matter. Uh, I did a report for Foreign Technology Division on uh, analysis and evaluation of fast and intermediate reactors for space vehicle applications. Uh, the word that was, the key word that was left out was Russian. I was looking at Russian technical literature, translated, because I don't speak Russian, mm -hmm. and I'm trying to get a handle on what their capabilities would be for putting a, a nuclear power plant in space. Okay, there were two volumes to my final report. The first was a bibliography covering umpteen different areas of technology. It in no way mentioned the second volume. The second volume was my analysis of what that meant. And I correctly, as I'm happy to say, predicted that they would be putting nuclear power plants in space. They put about 35 of them in. We've only put one. But the point is, the same people, Battelle Memorial Institute, Foreign Technology Division of the Air Force, and I put out two reports, one of which isn't mentioned in the other. So it would expect, the thing that's missing from Blue Book Special Report 14 
are, there are two things, really. Analysis of the classified reports, which surely went their way. And, you know, how do you get more data? You know, the good stuff. Yeah. And uh, those aren't there. So it makes sense to me that there would have been a Report 13. And I didn't prompt the people who told me about having seen it. I didn't say, hey, did you ever see any Report 13? Not at all. One of the guys, I was going through my slides at a facility that I was going to be speaking later in the day, just checking out the projector and stuff. And a guy was sitting off to the side, and he asked me afterward, hey, how many reports were there in Blue Book? Because he saw the slide that said Blue Book Special Report 14. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, I told him that, well, 1 through 12 and 14. He says, well, I saw a copy of one number 13. He was in the classified files in uh, Nebraska, Omaha, SAC base, I guess. And uh, it, it was there. And he started to look at it. It was marked you know, on the cover, top secret and so forth. And then the guard over there saw that he was looking at something that he probably wasn't clear to look <laughs> at. I mean, he had a clearance. He wouldn't have gotten in there without it. But uh, so, uh, you know, I didn't prompt him. And the other was from a guy named Bill English, who some people have heard of, um, big guy who was at a base in England, an intelligence place, and he says he saw a copy there and described a bit what was in it. So this isn't proof of anything. What I'm saying is it makes sense that there would have been one with the organizations that were involved. And I would love a copy. And if anybody happens to have one, please contact me. My uh, phone number is on my website at www.stantonfriedman.com. Uh, you know, and there's a toll-free number. and. You know, the point here is we're, we're, we're racing the undertaking. We're losing almost all those races. So if somebody knows something, it would be nice to hear about it before he dies. Absolutely, yes, yes. You know, that would be useful. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Yeah, I'm surprised we haven't seen this thing come out in a Serpo-esque, you know, uh, situation <laughs> either. It's really kind of an ur hasn't even become urban legend status yet. So uh, I'm surprised, like I said, this is the first time I even considered or heard of the number 13 book. But uh, hopefully someday. Well, you know, you're the first one to ask me about that, Tim. Well, I appreciate that. Like I said, I went through this book with a fine-tooth comb, and what really stood out to me was what I wanted to ask you about today. Okay. Um, the next question here is, you make an amazing statement, but you don't really talk more about it, and that's what we're going to do right now. And it's a speculative statement, sort of on a, a theoretical, historical level of uh, ufology, which fascinated me. You say, if Jim McDonald, who you put over huge in the book as one of the greatest ufologists, if not the greatest uh in history, if Jim McDonald had lived many more years, instead of dying in 1971, I believe the situation today would be very different. Let's hear how you think it would be different, because I'm very interested in your perspective on that. Well, Jim took advantage of his position as a professor uh, in the physics department, uh, atmospheric engineering, uh, atmospheric sciences at the University of Arizona. He, he was a lecturer for a whole year. He spoke at a whole bunch of different sections of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. He gave a wonderful talk at the, uh, uh, what do they call, the American Journalists Association, whatever it was in Washington, uh, the, the National Press Club there mm -hmm. was, was very well received. And Jim was great about writing up all his talks, so we, we have the words. 
And so he was a damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead guy who had guts. He wasn't an apologist ufologist. And people who've read the book and Ruffles wonderful book uh, about Jim recognize that he was um, very, very different from J. Allen Hynek. Alan was a nice guy, but he was an apologist ufologist. He started every lecture, and I heard him speak a number of times, apologizing for talking about UFOs. And he didn't have the atmospheric sciences background that Jim did. Jim was great at using the tools of science to debunk the debunkers. People like Phil Klass, Dr. Donald Menzel of Harvard, uh, who explained things, for example, as temperature inversions. Well, Jim went to the weather records and showed, uh, you know, how much of a bend in the light there would have been because of a temperature inversion. Class tried to throw in plasmas as explanations, but he got it all wrong. Jim wrote a paper in which he dealt with that fact by fact by fact. So he was the leading guy, and he he was a dynamic guy. And very helpful. He used to stop by. I was living in Pittsburgh, working for Westinghouse. And he'd stop by and talk to us. We had a good group of people, most of them Westinghouse engineers or scientists. And he let us reprint uh, one of his papers, uh, UFOs, the most challenging scientific problem of our time, and sell it so we could make a profit to pay for the answering service, you know, and all that kind wow, of stuff. Nice. So he uh, was a true leader. And we lost somebody very – well, he's the one who uh, was most responsible for the congressional hearings of 1968, uh, at which 12 scientists – well, six provided testimony in person, six more of us in writing only. I was one of the latter group of six. And I've always taken great pride at being the only one of the 12 who didn't have a Ph.D. <laughs> I was also the youngest one, I think. <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, well, yeah, you know, I, I've been raked over the coals down in Florida for not – I, you know, I'm not a nuclear physicist. I don't have a PhD. Was the attitude of a professor down there at Florida State University, and you know, in industry, you didn't need a PhD uh, to be called a nuclear physicist. And I believe there are far more nuclear people working outside universities. You know, nuclear submarines, nuclear uh, aircraft carriers, uh, nuclear medicine. Uh, nuclear power plants. There's all kinds of stuff going on that uses nuclear people. You don't need to be a professor. But anyway, um, so I, I think that was a major loss to ufology. I was not suggesting, I hope you noticed, that there was a conspiracy to get rid of Jim. Yeah, I didn't Yeah, I didn't take that to be the case. So well, some that. people, I got calls from people after he died, Stan, you're going to be next. They got him. Oh, jeez. Because of that, I called his daughter and talked to her and got the straight scoop. I normally wouldn't do that, but I, I don't want people spreading false stories. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm absolutely convinced that the suicide, it was a suicide. He had some depression problems. Uh, you know, so I, I did check on that. And uh, I've talked to his wife since, and uh, as well as back then. I was one of the first people at his files, did meticulous work. A good case in point is the RB-47 case, which involved the crew of a reconnaissance bomber. The, the sighting lasted for roughly an hour, flying over the Gulf of Mexico and then Louisiana, uh, Mississippi, Texas, Oklahoma, 
with all kinds of sophisticated gear on board. They saw it visually. They saw it on their radar. They talked to the ground. The ground had it on their radar. Well, Jim found this in the Blue Book files, and he talked to all seven of the crew members. Wow. He was thorough and in detail. And so, you know, he didn't just talk to one guy of a crew. He talked to them all, if they were alive. Uh, he didn't, wasn't able to reach those who weren't alive anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. So do you think that had he been, you know, alive today, like you say, um, I'll, I'll throw like a supposition for you. Maybe more mainstream scientists would feel more comfortable acknowledging yeah. UFOs and uh, maybe the pressure that was on the government in the late 60s, early 70s wouldn't have fizzled out as fast, although the Condon Report right. had a lot to do with that. Well, sure it did. But no, I think there definitely would have been a difference. And, uh, you know, when you have guts enough to talk to – I've talked to half a dozen sections of the AIAA, American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics – and I know how interested and how well they respond and all the rest of that. And Jim was doing this. He, he was doing a lot of those talks. Uh, yeah, and because he did have a Ph.D. and was a professor at a respectable institution, uh, University of Arizona, uh, it's not surprising that he was well-received because he was very knowledgeable and very careful about what he said. But when you boiled it all down, wow, you know. Uh, yeah. Uh, that's why I published his congressional testimony, 71 pages, mind you, uh, as a separate document. It's listed on my website. Because uh, anybody who tries to tell you there aren't any good cases, I'd look at those 41. Absolutely. <laughs> a bunch of excellent ones. Absolutely, yeah. Now, just to add a little bonus surprise here for Christmas, we're working on getting Ann Druffle on the show soon, folks. So we'll be doing a big episode on Jim McDonald and his life and his influence on ufology. So look for that in the new year. Um, his book was uh, Firestorm, incidentally. I should have mentioned the name by Ann Droffel. Yep, yep. That's what we we'll talked about. Him. about. Yeah, good. And then uh, one interesting thing I wanted to ask you about, because I've heard all about your research into nuclear rockets, and you talked a lot just now about how, you know, there's still people working in all these different nuclear realms. Uh, why do you think the research in nuclear rockets dried up so fast, and, and you know, at first, uh, maybe someone would want to say, well, maybe they went black, but since you were working in the classified realm in nuclear rockets, technically, I guess it was black, so why do you think nuclear rockets, uh, that whole realm of, of application to nuclear stuff, sort of dried up? Because in the book, you mentioned how you talked to a NASA guy, and they said they were thinking about possibly researching nuclear rockets, and it's like, but you were doing that. You know, 30 years later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So well, what happened well, there? It, I, I, I didn't work on black projects. The oh, okay. data was classified, but uh, no, I wasn't hiding behind the black curtain. <laughs> uh, I think, you know, it, it's only my view because I was involved uh, in industry and with NASA-sponsored programs, some of them. Lack of guts and lack of mission. I worked on at least five different programs that desperately needed somebody like Admiral Hyman Rickover, who was responsible for the nuclear submarine. And Congress learned they could trust him. And, you know, he had to fight the battleship guys and the aircraft carrier guys. I mean, eventually we, do, we now do have nuclear-powered aircraft carriers, and they're pretty neat when you can go 18 years without refueling. That's pretty spectacular. Uh but there's no mission. We haven't decided. I mean, do you realize that since President Kennedy enunciated the goal of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely by the end of the decade, back in, like, what, 61, mm -hmm. uh, 
NASA hasn't had a goal. Well, they want money to keep flowing, and they got a bunch of projects they want to get done, but they don't have a goal. The thing about going to the moon, you had to achieve a lot of subsidiary goals before you got there. Things like uh, a rendezvous, because uh, you got two parts of the vehicle, and you know it's kind of important you'd be able to get together in space. Uh, you know there are no parking meters to guide your way. Uh, there are a whole bunch of other things that they had to do. But when you don't have to justify these every year, standard funding, then you can proceed much more rapidly. Well, I've talked to a number of astronauts. They all thought we'd already have a base on the moon by now. But we don't even know why they didn't fly Apollo 18 and 19. They were built. The crews were trained and selected. And Nixon said, well, it would save money. Well, you know, the money's already spent. <laughs> yeah. The Navy's going to be out on the ocean whether you're looking for the uh, guys landing back from space or not. You know, you're not saving money there. So I think it's, it's a lack of goal. Nuclear rocket is good. Well, I'll give you a further point about this. I was out at Aerojet General, and we worked with them. Uh, it was in Northern California, Sacramento. And I worked on radiation shielding for nuclear rockets with Westinghouse in Pittsburgh. And I was out there talking to my shielding uh, colleague, and he said, hey, Stan, you want to go to a meeting? What is it? Well, uh, the Space Nuclear Propulsion Office of NASA is having a meeting on what should we do with the nuclear rocket. Oh, sure, I'd love to go. So I went. It was the worst meeting I ever saw in my life because these guys didn't know what they wanted to do with the nuclear rocket. You know, should we use it for Earth orbit, lunar orbit, maybe to set up a lunar base? Oh, we could go to upper stage on Mars. I had a few other thoughts. Look, you don't get funding unless you've got a goal, because yeah. there's always other guys with their hands up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They didn't, and, you know, I saw this on the nuclear airplane program. They kept changing their mind about what they're going to do. I worked for General Electric on that one. They didn't have any of their own money in the programs, a cost-plus contract. Well, they owned the rug on the boss's floor. That was about it, the government-owned facility from World War II, no less. So when you don't know what you want to do and don't have a strong man at the top saying, this is where we're going, this is why, we're going to get there. Rick Over used to say he'd have to buy two of everything if he needed to to make sure he had one that worked. Yeah, and people who worked for him, some of them hated him because he was a martinet, and you know he might call him up at three o'clock in the morning. But he had a habit; he liked to hire people smarter than he was. And that wasn't easy. Yeah, but because uh, he, he was smart. But none of the other programs—nuclear uh, power plants in space, and the military compact reactor program, and. Uh, others that I have worked on had a champion who said, this is where we're going, guys. Let's get with it. And if you don't like it, get off the train. You know, so that's the best answer I can come up with. We successfully tested a variety of nuclear rocket engines, and they weren't small. The biggest one, the Los Alamos, built 4,400 megawatts. That's energy output. That's twice the power of Grand Coulee Dam. Wow. And it was less than seven feet in diameter, you understand. Yeah. Uh, when I was at Westinghouse, we tested ours was only 1,100 megawatts. 
that's a lot. And it worked the whole the limit of time that we could operate it because you need after cooling because the thing gets radioactive and you better cool it. And uh, it was a limit of an hour, and we were people were taking bets. You know, how long is it going to run before the fuel elements come out the back end? <laughs> and, uh, Ten minutes, twenty minutes, thirty minutes. We listened to it in real time from Westinghouse, and it ran the full hour, but it had to be shut down. So the, what I'm saying is the program was a success, but the patient died. <laughs> <laughs> Since you said you like you guys successfully tested this stuff, do you think they ever? Uh, just the the research went on, uh, like you said, you didn't do it in the black. Let's say, you know, do you think they ever just, you know, enveloped it into some other thing, and and it might still be going well, on today, or would you have already, or would you have, you know, been a part of all that stuff? Well, I I, I can't really say. I have no. If it was carried on, continued, it wasn't continued at Westinghouse Astronuclear Lab. Now, whether somebody else might have been called in to take over the old technical data on a classified basis. I don't know, but I'll tell you one thing. There aren't too many places you can test stuff like that. The nuclear test site out in uh, Nevada there, uh, you know, Area 51 is over the hills that way, but uh, you these things get to be quite radioactive. Yeah. So you don't have people driving by as, <laughs> you know, tourists or anything like that. And there's a big uh, facility a remote operating facility, because once the reactor's been run, you want to take it apart, but it's mounted on a, a railroad car so that you can move it in remotely and move it back remotely, uh, the back's the important part, and then work on it. And so those are big, expensive facilities with very specialized gear. And you, you really... You know, you don't build many facilities like that. I'll put it that way. Okay, yeah. All right, now another entertaining part of the book that I really enjoyed was uh, the whole chapter on the science fiction and, and UFOs and that thing, especially <laughs> uh, the you, I want to call it a little feud here going on between you and Isaac Asimov or the exchange you guys sort of had. Yeah. Uh, talk a little bit about that part of the book and, and, and that part of your history and, and uh, you know, your exchanges with Asimov because I found them really interesting. Well, you know, I read a lot of science fiction when I was 10 or 12. I had a friend whose older brother had a basement full of the old pulp magazine. I'd take one or two home at night with me and read them and stuff. And then I got to reading uh, about real adults, and I got in being a real scientist and sort of left science fiction behind. I'd always respected Asimov, but then I ran across some really stupid things that he'd said about flying saucers. I, I had trouble believing it. And he had an article in uh, TV Guide, you know, which has an enormous circulation. And it was crazy. I mean, yes, I know he earned his living as a writer, not as a scientist. He does have a PhD, did have a PhD in chemistry and stuff. But uh, he seemed to be totally unacquainted with the evidence. He knew J. Allen Hynek and apparently liked him. But uh, I objected to some of the things he said, and I wrote – somebody sent him a copy of a MUFON paper that I had given. And so he commented about that somewhere, and I responded to that. And uh, then I sent him some more stuff, and he's famous for replying to all correspondence, you know. Mm -hmm. So I got a postcard back. I, I, I'm letting you know that I will not respond, but just so you won't think that you're – package didn't arrive. You know, that was his answer. <laughs> he couldn't deal with anything. So 
I was disappointed primarily because, you know, Isaac wrote a book. I think he wrote over 400 books or some question about just how many, but it was a lot. And uh, he betrayed uh, bad science. Uh, for example, he uh, made an assumption about uh, how many civilizations there are in a galaxy. And, you know, it, it's a really big assumption because we don't really have any data except on one. But he calculates an average distance between civilizations. Now, there's no basis for that distance, but even if it were correct, he then goes on to say, since the nearest one is that distance away, he tells you that they're distributed randomly, and then he makes the distance to the nearest one the same as the distance between them. I once did a calculation when I was living outside San Francisco. I was, what, less than 30 miles away. The average distance of the 10 largest cities in the United States from my house was 1,800 miles. But the nearest one was 30 miles away. Exactly. You, you get the point. <laughs> and so it was, it was a crazy thing. And he also made disparaging remarks about uh, people who are interested in UFOs. Uh, he was afraid Heineck would be tainted with some of those kooky people and stuff like that. So I quoted, I had to get permission to use his words because they were published, uh, which I did get. But I, I was disappointed with him. Uh, you know, my whole feeling was he worked very hard to make science fiction respectable, but he was afraid of being tarred with the kook brush, I guess. Yeah. So we want to stay away from these nuts, you know. We're, we're respectable science fiction people. We're not UFO nuts, you know. <laughs> now, the three main uh, sci-fi writers that you talk about are Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, and Ben Bova. Now, those are obviously Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember if Arthur C. Clarke is alive or not still. I thought no, he, no, he died away. not very long ago. He yeah. lived to be in his 90s. Passed away like this year or something, I think. Within the past year, and one of his great hopes was that we'd find the answer to the question about whether there's life out there. Well, I'm sure he knows now. <laughs> Probably so. Uh, ben Bova's getting up there in years. Asimov is gone now as well. Do you think, have you seen any sort of change, I guess, uh, you know, with the present-day giants of sci-fi writing? Has it, has it gotten better, I guess you'd say, uh, as far as their take on UFOs? I'm not in a good position to evaluate that. I read very little science fiction. I did quote uh, something Heinlein had said uh, when he was asked a question by a young guy who wrote a book about him, and he was much more reasonable. But I also mentioned in the book that I went into a science fiction bookstore in uh, Berkeley where everything goes, you know. Yeah. I asked for their UFO books. We don't carry any of that junk. Yeah. <laughs> you so it's a systemic and problem. It seems to be. Uh, you know, I, I can't account for it, but I, they could have done a lot of good if they paid any attention. But they lack guts, I think. Uh, you know, people are so afraid to speak out because of their perception, wrong as it is, as I note in the chapter on the opinion polls, that nobody else believes in flying saucers. And they have trouble believing that in over 700 lectures, I've only had 11 hecklers and two of them were drunk. Uh, and I come on as strong as anybody comes on. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a fair thing to say. <laughs> That's a, that's a perfect segue to the next question I have here, because uh, you do a great job of establishing 
uh, sort of the tenor of public opinion as far as UFOs go, as far as we know as uh, surveys and stuff. And I've found from my own perspective uh, that it seems like most people believe in UFOs, but they don't seem to make the jump to actually caring about it or wanting to do anything about it or, you know, it's now it's sort of well, of an established fact in their mind, but then they're like, you know, they, they just pass it off like the weather or something. Well, it, it's worse than that in a sense. I, I think I cite in the book that I had a class of 100 students. I asked them to vote with their eyes closed so that it would be independent and not dependent on their neighbor and what they said. Uh, to make a long story short, 80% said they thought most people didn't believe in UFOs, and yet 80% of that group did believe in UFOs. Uh, that's a big dichotomy, a, a misperception, if you will. Mm -hmm. The kicker is our behavior is dependent on how we think other people will respond for most people. If they're afraid of being laughed at, they won't report a sighting. 90% of the people, 10% uh, of the people in my lectures believe they've had a sighting, but 90% of that 10% didn't report what they saw. So if you perceive that other people laugh, you don't talk about what you saw, you don't teach a course on a college level, you don't sponsor a PhD thesis, you laugh if somebody brings it up and, you know, you'll make remarks about little green men and so forth because your perception is wrong. And I can see this when I ask that question about how many here at my lecture hall have uh, believe they've seen a flying saucer. The hands initially, I look to my left for some reason, and that's not a political statement. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the hands go up hesitantly. They trust me. I mean, I've just given them a lecture on flying saucers are real, and they know I'm not going to laugh. But I point and count, and as I move across the hall to my right, by the time I get over the far right, the hands go up briskly. Oh, they're not the only ones, in other words. Yeah. So uh, there's an important lesson there, and I think uh, I've run across it in, would you sell your house to a minority person? A social science question, you know. Mm -hmm. And it turned out there again, well, I'd be willing to, but I don't think my neighbors would like it. You know, so yeah. my behavior is determined by my perception of how other people will respond. And that's that's the kicker. Now, I must admit, I talk about 11 hecklers, but I've been beaten on quite a bit this past month or so. <laughs> There are hecklers out there. Two professors at Florida State University uh, called me a pseudoscientist, and one said I was a well-known charlatan, and uh, I'm considering a libel suit. I have two years to decide. Uh, but neither one came to my lecture, that which they were objecting to. I had no sense of either one of them knowing anything at all about the subject. And then uh, the most recent, and I just saw something more yesterday, uh, a guy named Ryan Dunning has a skeptoid website, apparently, or podcast. And he wrote a piece about the Betty and Barney Hill case, in which he got just about everything wrong. I mean, really bad job. And, you know, obviously he hadn't read either captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience by myself and Kathleen Martin, who's only Betty's niece, has all her tapes and all the rest of that. And he apparently hadn't read uh, John Fuller's book, uh, you know, The Interrupted Journey. Yeah. And then he got mad. He, somebody heard me on a radio program said that I'd found all kinds of things wrong with his chapter, and he got madder than heck on that. <laughs> and uh, also claimed 
this was, you know, I supposedly have made my living since 1970 writing books about UFOs. Now, the first book with my name on it is 1992. He also has me writing a book about Travis Walton, which I never did. And going on these uh, publicity tours. I don't go on publicity tours. I haven't had rich publishers, if you will. I sit at home and do telephone interviews. That's about the extent of it. But, you know, and and he, he calls me a wacko UFO or UFO wacko. And uh, he objects to my talking about being a nuclear physicist because, you know, he stopped work in 1970. Well, I didn't. I worked on the commissioning of the Point Pro Nuclear Generating Station right here in New Brunswick. I did studies on uh, food irradiation, seed stimulation, uh, measuring radon in people's houses and wells and a whole bunch of other subjects. Uh, so where does a guy get off making up this stuff? And he has one of the worst is he has Betty writing up her dreams and rewriting her dreams and rewriting. And for two years, she just kept rewriting and rewriting. And Barney must have heard her a hundred times talking about that. And so uh, what he put forth is just an echo of her dreams. Well, Kathleen Marden did a very good comparative analysis and captured, and it's nonsense. And there was no re- – she wrote them up once. That was it. Barney didn't want to hear about flying saucers, so it sat in the drawer. So where does a guy come up with something like that, you know? Yeah, that's strange. And my next column – I mean, it's it's in the, the pipeline for MUFON Journal and UFO Magazine – is about his nonsense – and it will be interesting to see if I get a response to that. But, yeah. You know, where do the, the, the skeptics seem to share each other's uh, stupidity? <laughs> I'll put it that way. <laughs> That's the best way to put it. I was looking Absolutely. for a good word. But, you know, with the amazing Randy at the top of the heap, whose forte is he's a magician. That's a master of deception. Isn't that the definition of a magician? I believe so, yeah. They're about... You know, and uh, maybe it's no surprise that uh, Joe Nickel, the scientific investigator for, uh, well, what do they call themselves now? CSI, uh, Committee for... Oh, Psychop or something like that. Yeah, it used to be Psychop, and they've changed the name. Uh, You know, CSI makes it sound like they're being like the forensic people (laughs) and stuff like that. He's got three degrees in English, and he has worked as a magician. And this is the scientific investigation? Yeah, it seems like a sci-fi and the magic to kind of like some weird connection there, too, in the same, you know, some... Yeah, but they, of course, don't look at M-A-J-I-C. There you go, yeah. Now, you say in the book, uh, to sort of move to the next thing, and it's kind of in the same realm, a good segue again here, um, that it's surprising to you that the Roswell story is still a major bone of contention in 2008. Um, That actually is not very surprising to me, because just uh, from my interaction with various ufologists, you know, you get five of them together, they can't even agree on where to go for lunch. So to agree on the Roswell story is is uh, is case. Well, really you're open. right. So that part's not really surprising to me. But question I had for you is, uh, you started investigating this a long time ago. Are you surprised that the answer that this thing wasn't ever solved? Like I've talked to George Knapp, and when he first started looking at UFOs, he was like, I'll crack this in six months. Were you kind of like that with the Roswell story, where you were like, you know, this amazing story, well, this is going to change everything? 
Yeah, I, I was a bit like that, although the more I looked around, the more... Remember, I worked under security for 14 years, so... And a lot of it was in New Mexico, not that I worked there, but Los Alamos was there, and Sandia was there, and White Sands Missile Range, so it's a great place for keeping secrets. Uh, you know, and we started pretty late. I mean, I talked to Jesse Marcel, geez, 30 years ago, I <laughs> that. Uh, yeah, I, I am a little surprised that we haven't had closure on that. I blame part of it on the press for not doing its job. Uh, the press and the scientific community have been averse to getting their hands dirty. Uh, I've seen some television documentaries that get into Roswell where they get everything wrong, and you wonder why in the world was that allowed on the air? It was so bad. And, you know, what's happened, of course, is we're just about running out of witnesses. Uh, Earl Fulford was a new witness in Roswell this past July. I was there, of course, and uh, he handled pieces of the wreckage. He was part of a detail that went out with their gunny sack, as he called it, and picked up these little pieces of foil. And they would unfold uh, as he put them into the bag. Now, he had been pushed by uh, Don Schmidt and Tom Carey to talk years ago. We have base yearbooks, so we know who was there. And he refused to talk, and then finally he said, okay, so they flew him out. He, I was in a panel with him uh, and Tom and Don in Roswell in July. He was 82 in poor health, and he died less than two months later. Oh, wow. Uh, and so, you know, we're running out of these guys. And it's one of the reasons, it may sound funny, but one of the reasons I do, you know, telephone interviews, all kinds of interviews, is I'm hoping that somebody who hears me will want to come forward, finally break his silence. You know, uh, Thomas Jefferson DuBose, who was a retired general when I talked to him, uh, General Ramey's chief of staff in Fort Worth, Texas, he's in the pictures with the Ramey memo, you know, and mm -hmm. stuff like that. I managed to find him. I'm a pretty decent detective, and that's an unusual name, and located him, and he was in his 80s, and visited him in person uh, twice, and he's on the tape. Uh, there's a video of the, uh, whatever you call it, uh, uh, not a CD, but... Uh, DVD? DVD, yeah. Uh, and they're... 27 Roswell witnesses, and he's one of them. And the, the kicker is, in our last conversation, he said, Stan, I like what you're doing. If I remember anything more, I'll tell you. What can they do to me now? I think he was 87 at the time. And so I'm looking for more of these guys who are saying, you know, what can they do to me now? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm near the end. Uh, uh, let's Might as well, I hate to cover this up. There's another thing to contend with here, of course. We're dealing with people who are almost all veterans of World War II. So they knew about loose lips sinking ships. They were patriotic. They took their security oaths very seriously. And so they're much more, you know, the modern generation thinks of the way things were in the Vietnam War, where there were a lot of people opposed to the war and speaking out and so forth. It wasn't like that for World War II. 
So I'm looking for those witnesses, and look at my website, and you'll see my number, and give me a call. There's a toll-free number there. Absolutely, yeah. It sounds like maybe the media and the government and the science community are trying to run out the clock almost, if you will, and just uh, eventually yeah. turn this thing into an urban legend. Or well, you know, yeah. they all have a particular problem, the three the groups that you mentioned. That is, these are people who take great pride in their great knowledge of everything important. Yeah. And everybody agrees if aliens were visiting Earth, that would be important. And if the government's covering it up on top of that, even super important. But if it were super important, they would know about it, see, and they don't, so it must not be. And anybody who thinks it is must be some kind of a nut, and they're not going to waste their time looking into this area. And, you know, I'll give you a specific example, which I wish the media would run with. Uh, General Carroll, who was in the Air Force, and he uh, wrote, he was asked, to, what should we do about Project Blue Book? This is toward the end of 1969. Yeah. And uh, he wrote a memo, which we didn't get until maybe 10 years later, but it was responsible for closing Project Blue Book. And in it, he says that reports of UFOs which could affect national security are made in accordance with Joint Army-Navy Air Force Publication 146 or Air Force Manual 55-11 and are not part of the Blue Book system. Now, the Blue Book people have said forever that they were the group. That's it. That's us. Uh, and then he, he, two paragraphs later, he says, if we close Project Blue Book, the public won't have a place to report sightings. However, as previously noted, reports which could affect national security will continue to be made or investigated using the uh, regulations established for that purpose. Now, You'd think some reporter would want to go big with that. Okay, guys, where the heck are these other reports? <laughs> yeah. They're the ones that are important, the ones that could affect national security. You know, uh, the, the uh, saucer going down the runway at a sack base is a national security problem. <laughs> I've got two stories like that. Absolutely. Now, listen. Kids, we love Santa. We have to say it. I have to say it. We love Santa. Everybody loves Santa. But remember, December 25th, baby Jesus' birthday. We must keep that in mind. December 25th, baby Jesus. Just thought I'd get that in. We love Santa, but let's not be silly. No, it's nice. Merry Christmas. Right. Merry Christmas! It's the one night of the year when we all act a little nicer. We, 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 we cheer a little more. For a couple of hours out of the whole year... We are the people that we always hoped we would be. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. It's a good feeling. It's, it's really better than I've felt in a long time. Have a Merry Christmas, everybody. We're doing great here on Segways because that kind of uh, leads to the next question I had for you because you recount in, this, in the book how when that whole memo came out and everything, uh, J. Allen Hynek was pretty upset and thought that he had been used by the Blue yes. Book organization. I guess just uh, let's talk a little bit about your relationship with Hynek. You have a great story in the book about your first meeting with him. And <laughs> <laughs> it's just quite a story. And uh, and I, I just to piggyback onto that question, you, you've said, you know, that he's an apologist, ufologist, or he was. Did you ever sort of have that conversation with him and try and, you know, get him to change his ways? Well, we, we had a number of conversations. We, we were friendly. I, 
you know, and as I said to somebody, look, you can't blame a good washing machine for being a poor dryer. Uh, Alan was not a boat rocker, guaranteed. It, it goes with his Czech blood. Uh, if you talk to people, and I once saw an article about this, uh, Czechoslovakia has been overrun so many times by so many other uh, countries that the idea is you don't make waves. Mm -hmm. And Alan was not a wave maker. So we had conversations. I tried to get him to look at uh, interstellar travel technology uh, unsuccessfully. I gave him references uh, to a whole bibliography and stuff like that. Also, we had a conversation in his office in which he said, Stan, the problem is that most scientists don't believe in UFOs. And I said, Alan, that may be your experience with astronomers, but I deal with physicists, with engineers, with chemists, with all kinds of other people. I've spoken to many of them. I take a very strong stand, and they're very receptive. So he was under the impression, I mean, he didn't say anything when Dr. A. Bell, a professor at UCLA, introduced him with, four or five negative remarks about UFOs. Now, nobody who introduced me with negative remarks would have been allowed to get away with it. Frankly, I'd have corrected him right up front. You just, you know, you can't let people get by because then it's assumed that they were telling the truth. Yeah. And so Alan was a, a good man, a decent man. And I knew we were in trouble about his leadership, though, when at a meeting in Ida Bell Epperson's house in Los Angeles, the NICAP subcommittee out there, which had been very active, this is as he was retiring from the university, and he said he was going to apply for federal funds, uh, research funds, uh, for the new center he was talking about setting up. And I said, how much money, Alan? And I forget whether, I think it was 25000 well, you ask for two hundred and fifty thousand, and you settle for a hundred. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But twenty-five means you don't put much much value on it. You know, yeah. that's how the other guy's going to judge. It can't be very important if that's all he wants. What's he going to get done? So, and I I do have to add that he was the same age as my father, literally born in nineteen ten. Both of them. Uh, and my dad outlived him. I lived to be 89. Alan was only 76 when he died, unfortunately. Came in with the comet and went out with the comet, uh, interestingly enough. Huh. Uh, not Hale Bopp, incidentally. <laughs> <laughs> but the big comet. You there know. you go, yeah. Uh, so we did have some discussions, and I thought Ann Druffel treated the discussions between him and Jim McDonald very well. Uh, Jim was willing to go into the lion's den with a shotgun. You know? Exactly. <laughs> Alan wasn't. So I can't complain. Like I said, you don't expect a good washing machine to be a good dryer. It's not the nature of the beast. So it's unfortunate uh, in many ways. Uh, and also, you know, as Jim McDonald pointed out, uh, Alan was worried about his, his financial money from the Air Force. It was good consulting money. And Jim McDonald had six kids and four were in college at one time. So he had, you know, similar problems. And yet he had guts enough to beard the lion in his den. So I, I wish Alan had. That's all. Okay. 
All right, and this is the last of my questions, and then we'll get to the uh, forum folks' questions. And the final words of the book are, are really uh, a call to action, literally. It says, uh, the, the time for action is now. So what do you suggest we do? Uh, there's, there's folks out there, you know, who are bombarding Washington with faxes as I speak, with the, the million fax movement, yeah. and, and then, you know, there's other schools of ufology who are doing good research and stuff. But what do you suggest we do now? It sounds like... Ufology needs a sea change in public opinion more than anything that ufology can do itself. Well, yeah, I, I think we need to police ourselves for one thing. Uh, that is to say, uh, be careful what we publish and make sure that people understand that we're not the nuts who put out the quacky stuff. You know, I'm mm -hmm. thinking MUFON and the rest. Um, we, we need to be speaking out more. Also, I think maybe a series of press releases taking on different aspects of the science of UFOs. Uh, the, this memo from uh, the general uh, is one example. Uh, in other words, hit a particular objection head on. Because uh, if you listen to the noisy negativists, there is no evidence. Listen to the SETI guys. And you know, I make a big deal about what's wrong with SETI in the mm -hmm. book. But they keep saying there is no evidence. Well, you need to blast out and say, wait a minute, why haven't you looked at the large-scale scientific studies? You don't even mention them. Don't tell me there isn't any evidence. You haven't looked at it. You know, we don't need to be apologists about this kind of thing. Have the SETI people, for example, provided any, any evidence that there's anybody out there sending radio signals that we can pick up and translate, interpret, whatever you want? with our equipment. None. Zero. You know, it, it's a it's dartboard physics. And the Drake equation, you know, the numbers that you get, depending on what you put in, vary by a factor of a million. Uh, that's not an equation. That's dartboard physics. So I think if, if we would take on these things and have these papers, you know, maybe once every six weeks, with specific points and chop them up and cut them down, uh, you know, and the challenge to the media, to the science reporters, to the scientists. Now, I don't know whether I'm going to sue this professor down in Florida for libel or not. I have two years to decide. Let him worry a little bit. There you go. And, uh, you know, I, I did win a libel suit in England, so I know a little about suing for libel and winning. Uh, and maybe we'd get a lot of attention. I don't know. Also, I think if we were more unified in our approach to people like Larry King, Larry always has to have on a noisy negativist who knows nothing about the subject, but who is given equal time with people who have spent a great deal of time, money, and effort studying the subject. Mm -hmm. And he's not the only one. There are others who do the same thing. Yeah. Now, if you were doing a show on brain surgery, would you give equal time to the brain surgeon and the guy who mops the floor in the surgery? <laughs> you know, I mean, he's important and damn well better be clean if they're operating on somebody I know. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, they're, not, uh, they're, they're not equal. Okay. 
Now, we'll, uh, we're going to turn it over here now during this holiday special to the, the members of my forum, the, the USAV.com. I've been teasing this for the last couple of weeks at the end of the program for people to have an opportunity to ask you a question, only one question. We laid down a little ground rules. We don't want a four-paragraph recounting of their UFO sighting <laughs> followed by what do you think it was. Uh, we'll, we're going to skip those, thankfully. And uh, thoughtful questions here from the folks at the USAV.com, sort of my holiday gift to them. Because I've interviewed you five times, and some of these folks may never get a chance to ask you a question, even though they don't realize that they could probably just send you an email and you'd answer it. But, but let's uh, yep. let's dive right into the questions here from them. And the first one is from Sacrilicious. And I apologize. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to apologize ahead of time for some of these. Uh, most of them are pretty normal uh, message board names, but you know how it is with, with that world. Yes. Uh, have you ever done any research into the UFO slash ET phenomenon and the ties that it has with altered states of consciousness? Well, not directly. In other words, it would be nice if you had an alien and could find out what his capacities are that aren't like ours. On the other hand, I have long said that it would be incredible to me if aliens were only advanced in nuts and bolts and technology. I expect they're going to learn about the world of the mind and the spirit and reincarnation and stuff like that. And so I would be astonished if they didn't have a lot of those skills. And just think of one. How is it they get abductees and others to do what they want without sticking a, a gun in their back or a knife at their throat? Mind control. And this came home particularly to me when the first time I visited the site where Betty and Barney Hill were uh, abducted. In New Hampshire, I was with Kathleen Martin and a film crew, as a matter of fact. And we're driving right to the exact location, and it's perfectly obvious that there is no way in the world Barney would have gone off a main road onto a secondary road and taken a turn off that onto a dirt tertiary road yeah. without somebody upstairs directing him. Because it gets right over to the only large open area where they can set down the saucer. It's very heavily forested up there. And when you're there, you may not appreciate it when you're not there, but when you're there, you realize there was control, at a, mind control at a distance. Yeah. Now, that's remarkable, you know. And the fact that they can induce uh, lack of memory, you know, forgetfulness, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, wouldn't every government like to be able to do both of those things? You know, get everybody to drop their guns now, guys, you know, <laughs> and stuff like that. So... I am presuming, uh, based on examples like that, that they are very heavily into the world of the mind, the spirit, call it what you want. And we haven't learned to do what they can do. Yeah. Okay. All right. The next question is from Red Sun Superman, and here's what he has to say. <laughs> How can the two people who have investigated Roswell the most, yourself and Kevin Randall, disagree on so much? Well, I would put Don Schmidt and Tom Carey in that same category, and Dennis Balthaser as well. Kevin and I are very, very different people. People, Many people may not realize that he's written over 80 books of fiction. I don't know what the latest number is because he uses other names. There's nothing wrong with writing fiction. Don't misunderstand me. Mm -hmm. But uh, he's a great scenario creator. So uh, he comes up with notions and it takes a long time to convince them that, uh, you know, that, that simply isn't true. And so we're, we're very different in our approach to things. And uh, 
what can I say? If you look at my review of his book, Case MJ-12, uh, it's on my website at www.stantonfriedman.com. I go in chapter and verse on a whole host of specific things that he says, which really don't make a lot of sense. I guess I'll put it that way. Uh, just one example, he makes a big thing out of, I found nothing when I was looking at Menzel's papers that alluded to, suggested, or whatever, Majestic 12. Now, here's Menzel, who'd worked more than 30 years for the NSA, National Security Agency, as of 1960, mind you. That includes its Navy pre-war precursor, if you will. Why in the world would anybody expect him to leave classified material lying around? That makes no sense at all. Yeah. If there was somebody who was aware of security, it was certainly Donald Menzel. I talked to people who knew him, and he certainly was aware of security. Uh, that's one thing. As an example, he talks about uh, the use of the title admiral for uh, Hill Encoder. Uh, but he was only a vice admiral. This is in one of the MJ-12 documents. So clearly it's, it's fraudulent. And he even asked, and this is where the scenario making comes in, uh, early on, he said, show me another document signed by Hill Encoder as uh, Admiral. Well, there's no Hill Encoder uh, signature in any of the MJ-12 documents. So that's the first thing. And secondly, if he had done his homework, he'd know that the use of generic ranks, and I talk about this in Top Secret Magic as well as in the chapter on MJ-12 in uh, uh, Flying Saucers and Science, the... Standard practice was to use generic ranks. In other words, general for uh, brigadier general, major general, lieutenant general, four-star, same through the three levels of admirals. So it was, a, it was a false argument that is not backed up. And, uh, you know, I don't know where it came from, except he's good at creating scenarios. So we do agree, incidentally, I should stress, all the major researchers – Kevin and I and Don Schmidt and Tom Carey and Dennis Balthaser, Colonel Marcel himself, uh, Dr. Marcel, mm -hmm. that there was a crash flying saucer, that uh, there was wreckage found, that the government covered it up. Uh, you know, we disagree on some details, but we all agree to that scenario. Okay. All right. The next one comes from Primus, and here's what he has to say. Let's say that hypothetically there is full disclosure revealing that there is life on other planets and that we have been visited by them. Where does ufology go from there? You mean if the government, if the queen and the pope were to make an announcement, huh? There you go, yeah. That's, that's my, my favorite uh, highly trusted pair around the world. <laughs> <laughs> They're about the same age. Come on, they make a good couple. Uh, what can I say? Where do we go from there? Well, it depends what gets released and how it gets released. And I think, and I do have some suggestions in the book, but the kicker here is that this is a planetary problem. It's not a national problem. The difficulty we have is nationalism is the only game in town. And in other words, if people say, well, how do you select who speaks for planet Earth? Well, we'll hold an election. Uh-oh, India's got a billion people, China's got 1.3 billion, U.S. only has 305 million. We're not going to hold an election one man, one vote, are we? And who's going to give up power? 
That, that's what it's all about. Who speaks for planet Earth? So if there is an announcement to be made, it's got to be carefully done on an international level. And I think you do it by announcing that there will be conferences on the political, religious, economic aspects of the new reality that this represents. Because it is a new reality. I mean, suppose there's stuff here that we could sell other people. Who does it belong to? Just the country where it is, or is it planetary resource? How about the stuff at the bottom of the oceans? You know, stuff like that. Yeah. And secondly, it would be nice if we had some better idea of what the motivation of the aliens is. Are there eight different motivations from people from eight different places, beings from eight different places? I don't know. Are there good guys and bad guys? Are there some here to, you know, think of the uh, Mesoamericans, you know, after Columbus, say the next couple hundred years. There were Dutch people coming and Spanish and French and Portuguese and English. And there were people there to convert them religious-wise, to steal from them gold-wise, uh, you know, uh, to do all kinds of things, enslave them. There was some of that going on, too. So if we don't know that, then we need to be thinking about it. And also, if we, the United States, let's say, and I'm a dual citizen of the United States and Canada, I can justifiably complain about both governments. I'm entitled, <laughs> you know. But how many other countries are going to release what they have? And I, for one, don't want technical data out on the table. Uh, there are enemies in the world. Do you want Osama to learn your latest technique for monitoring the flight of vehicles in the atmosphere? I don't think so. Or for building a better bomber or fighter or whatever. Yeah. So th these are serious questions that need to be addressed on an international level. And, you know, we've got hotlines with uh, at least Russia and I think with uh, probably with China, too. Uh, you know, what just crossed onto your radar zone was not ours. It's one of those damn flying saucers. <laughs> I can just see the message now. <laughs> so it's a complicated thing. But who are the guys who are thinking about it? Is the War College looking into this? Be nice to know. And it would be nice if the darn academics would recognize that here's a fruitful area for study and concern. Yeah. That would be very nice indeed. Okay. Uh, the next one here comes from Afint1, and we might have already kind of touched on this, so uh, we'll see. In your opinion, what would it take for UFO alien visitors to truly get the proper attention and reporting by the mainstream media? Well, somebody with guts. You know, uh, not just the uh, Larry King show, but where's Walter Crockett when you need him, you know? Uh, I, I think we have a problem with this 24-hour news stuff with nobody digging in in depth to stories like this. Um, I think it would take a, a consortium, you will, a meeting of national reporters for the major networks to be educated. Uh, I had a good experience here in New Brunswick. Uh, a guy who was the program chairman for a national meeting of uh, sort of like Journalists of Canada Associate. That's not the name of it, but something like that. Mm -hmm. And they spoke in St. John, New Brunswick, and he had heard me somewhere, maybe on the radio and television. I don't know. 
Anyway, he wanted me to give a lecture. I said, sure. Didn't even get paid for it uh, because I wanted to reach the media people. And he told me afterward, he said, I've never seen so many sharp people change their mind <laughs> when they heard the facts as they did in your case. And, you know, you can judge some of that by the question and answer period. Are the people hostile? Because <laughs> I start off, uh, you know, some UFOs are alien spacecraft. We're dealing with a cosmic water gate. No good arguments against that. Uh, and we're dealing with the biggest story of the millennium. So I'm not an apologist, ufologist. And so they responded extremely well. Uh, so if there was another opportunity to talk to major news people and to talk at scientific organizations, now I've I've talked to a number of small groups, but when you got professors saying this is all pseudoscience, when in fact it's their attitude which isn't scientific, in other words, don't bother me with the facts, my mind's made up, that's not the hallmark of science. Uh, so I, I think we could do a lot more of that. Make an effort to look around and maybe tap somebody who's got some money to do uh some major mail-outs, for example. One thing I'd like to see is that a letter to the editor that would appear in a thousand papers, former military people who are aware of UFO sightings are asked to call this toll-free number, witness names won't be used without permission, and I'll bet you'd get some people coming forward if they felt it was safe. Absolutely. But it costs money to send out all those letters, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. That's something maybe maybe you just bought an ad. I don't know how well uh, that would be received if, by the papers, but that, that's an interesting avenue to explore. Papers are in trouble these days. Yeah, I don't know whether yeah. you noticed, but uh, the Chicago Tribune was talking about bankruptcy filing uh, the day before the story came out about the Illinois governor trying to sell the uh, Senate selection. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, you know. So newspapers are in trouble, and if somebody's got some money to spend to do it right, now would probably be a good time. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. Next question up here is from a theorist, and uh, I think I already know the answer to this one, and, and but we'll ask you anyway. In all your experience in the field of ufology, what do you find to be the most credible abduction case on record, and why? Well, you know, how do you compare apples and kumquats uh, and watermelons? You know, they're all fruit, but what's the basis, the biggest or the juiciest or whatever. Uh, obviously, I'm biased because I spent the most time with the Betty and Barney Hill case. And I think it's probably the best abduction case simply because Dr. Simon, who was not a UFO expert at all, was an extraordinary skilled uh, hypnotist, psychiatrist, put it whatever you, order you want, at getting people to work through the barriers uh, that stood in the way of their post-traumatic stress syndrome. In other words, uh, he worked, he was head of a hospital with 3,000 beds for World War II guys. He did the movie for the Army, Let There Be Light. He developed techniques for getting people to work through the incredibly distressing, deeply emotional reliving of, of a terrifying experience. And he had to stop a session with each of them, Betty and Barney, separately now, of course, all the sessions were, uh, because he thought that they might not be able to handle the level of the emotion that was coming out. And he said in writing, 
it was greater than that in any of the Shellshock War veterans that he had worked with. Uh, that's pretty powerful stuff. And so I, I, I like the case also because of the star map and because of the high caliber of the people. I mean, not just Dr. Simon, but, and I notice in this recent attack by Brian Dunning on the case who gets it all wrong in his Skeptoid article, he doesn't bother to mention that Betty was a supervisor in the welfare department state of New Hampshire. Doesn't bother to mention that Barney was on the governor's civil rights com uh, commission and was very active in civil rights. This is back in the 60s now when uh, that was kind of a big thing and a certain risk involved in that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so that case I would pick as my number one. And it's not just because I co-authored a book captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience. Okay. Um, all right. Now, this next one I had to sanitize a little bit, and I don't want you to be <laughs> getting into uh, telling tales out of school. The way I'll phrase it is, uh, what's the story with your feud with Paul Kimball? Uh, and I will say, in the interest of fairness, Paul's a good friend of mine. You know, I uh, visited him up in Canada, considered him a good friend, and, and uh, I've been, I kind of watched the the little thing develop here over the summer, and I think a lot of people who follow the online ufology world did too, so I guess I'll ask you. Well, Paul's my nephew, as you know. His father is my wife's brother, and his father is the same age I am within two weeks, as a matter of fact. And so uh, Paul's a very bright guy. Uh, he shies away from a number of aspects that I don't shy away from. Uh, I don't think abductions being the most obvious one. And uh, we have an entirely different approach to what you believe and what you don't believe, and motivations, I guess, of people involved. And I don't know what got him all upset. Uh, he was I was his favorite target in his blog, I guess. He, he's upset because I don't blog. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, I am on Facebook, but I don't use it. I got all kinds of people wanting to be my friend on Facebook, and I don't know why. <laughs> well, you know, I'm getting old. I only have so many years left. I, that's not how I want to space, spend my time. I've got other things to do. And uh, I, I think the, the whole question, uh, maybe one of the big bones of contention is this question of evidence versus proof and beyond a reasonable doubt and preponderance of the evidence and stuff like that. And I think he's afraid to stand up and say that it's clear that some UFOs are alien spacecraft. Some. Key word there. Mm -hmm. And uh, now I'll, I'll give him credit when he did his thing on uh, Majestic 12, Do You Believe in Magic? Um, he did let me listen to what Carl Flock said. I said, Paul, I, I need a comment on what he said, but I don't know what he said. So he let me watch it. And fortunately, I caught something which he hadn't caught, namely that uh, Carl was talking about Donald Menzel would never have said they were from Mars uh, he used to draw these little sketches of Martians, and that was just an inside joke and so forth. Well, when I, as soon as I saw that, I realized I had to say, you know, uh, Menzel's the one who said they weren't from Mars. This is in the MJ-12 papers. And so Paul treated that pretty fairly, uh, I thought. Uh, and so, no, I don't act like you young guys do, and 
Too bad. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. The next question is my personal favorite here coming up, and it's from Saucy Rossi, and it's completely out of left field, literally. The reason why it's my favorite, too, is because uh, we talked about Project Blue Book Special Report number 14, and I, I, I've often heard you say, you know, charts and graphs and data heaven. What do you think of sabermetrics in baseball? In what metrics? Sabermetrics in baseball. It's the anal It's like analysis of, I guess you don't know about it. It's like. No, I don't. Uh-oh. We may have started a whole new side hobby here for you. It's like. Uh, well, I was a big baseball fan when I was young. I grew up in New Jersey. I was a Dodger fan, and others were Giant or Yankee fans. We had three teams in New York, you know, so you were a rabid fan. I could quote you chapter and verse, numbers, all this kind of thing. But sabermetrics, I don't know. Okay. Well, I'll just uh, just clue you in. It's like a, a an intense statistical analysis of baseball used as a predictive uh, measurement of how players are going to do. It's it's complicated mathematical oh. type stuff. You'd love it, I bet. You should definitely check this it out. This is based on past performance, I yes. think. Yes, with with equations and stuff. It's it's quite a whole new realm of baseball that a lot of general managers use to analyze, okay. analyze players and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, check that out. We may have started a whole new side career for you. We're gonna how do you spell it? Uh, S-A-B-E-R, metrics. Oh. Yep. Okay. Yeah, it's like uh, math and baseball put together into, into a science. There you go, Saucy Rossi. You've changed Stan's career into, uh, we're going to see you writing for Baseball Perspective, I bet, like in six months. <laughs> well, you know, I, I like the idea of collecting facts, data, solid information. And one of the interesting things in Blue Book Special Report 14 is there statistical cross-comparison between the unknowns, to the only ones we're interested in, and the knowns, showing on the basis of six different characteristics that the probability that the unknowns or just misknowns was less than 1%. Uh, now, it's funny how the noisy negativists never mention that little fact. And they never mention that the better the quality of the sighting, and I'm sure this somehow fits into ball players, you know, how good a fielder, base runner, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, uh, statistics, yeah, they count for a lot. How the better the quality, the more likely to be an unknown. And as I point out, uh, you know, there was Carl Sagan saying there are interesting sightings that aren't reliable. There are reliable sightings that aren't interesting. But there are no interesting and reliable sightings which is totally false. The data is in Blue Book Special Report 14. So I'm very much in favor of gathering the data. Now, I don't know how good it is, but, you know, what, should you send a guy to steal second if in the past he's only been successful 8% uh, of the time? Probably not a good idea. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, but you need to have that data in order to make those judgments. Yeah. I'll shoot you, uh, shoot you an email with some, with some sabermetrics okay. stuff so you can check it out. All right, the next question comes from Circle Dancer, a very specific question. Uh, I'd like to know your views on the Russian UFO crash retrieval, which occurred in 1969 in the state of Sverlovsky. I believe that must be in the, at the time USSR. I've heard it speculated that this may have been some kind of training exercise, and the whole thing got spun for American TV with the addition of the autopsy footage. Now, I don't know anything about this. Okay, it, it sounds like there, there was a program on television uh, hosted by Roger Moore. I th not Roger. Is it Roger who played? Uh, James Bond? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was Roger, wasn't it? I, I believe I'm so. Thinking, I'm thinking the other Moore who's into movie, Michael Moore. <laughs> and I'm thinking, no, that's not right. Um, I was in a show. I was brought out to California to be interviewed about this crash saucer in the Soviet Union. And there was uh, supposedly footage of the guys in big Russian coats uh, stamping around this thing. And people saying uh, they were paying money and then they were filmed taking bribes, which I don't understand. Uh, it's my understanding, there was quite a lot of fuss about that when it ran, and I was very careful in what I said about that. Uh, it's my understanding that some of the Russians have identified that this was phony. It was a hoax. The whole thing was baloney, the supposed autopsy and the supposed crash and so forth. This is not to say that there haven't been any crashes in the Soviet Union. But I believe that particular case was much more likely a hoax than not. Okay. Okay. Yep. Uh, the next one's from Phaser, and he wants to know uh, why are you not a subscriber to the Colonel Corso aspect of the Roswell story? Well, there's a piece on my website about Colonel Corso. I noticed reading it the other day uh, that it isn't quite up to date. Look, I met the Colonel, the Lieutenant Colonel, really, until he retired. And it, a nice uh, old man. But he was given, how shall I put this? He stretched the truth. How's that? Is that a nice way of saying it? That's perfectly fine. Uh, for example, he signed a sworn statement to attorney Peter Gersten that he was a member of the National Security Council. And Peter was supposedly going to look for the rest of his files and all that sort of thing. So sworn legal affidavit, you know. Well, I checked with the Eisenhower Library. I've been to 20 archives, one place I differ from most of the people in the field. I think you got to go out and look, you know. Uh, and he was never a member of the National Security Council, and he never attended a meeting of the National Security Council. And they do keep track of this sort of thing. I can't believe how much stuff they keep track of. Sabermetrics for <laughs> archives, if you will. Anyway, I, I sent a copy of that letter to uh, Peter, and he showed it to uh, the colonel, and shouldn't we take this out? And he said, no. What? <laughs> you know, why would you start with a phony statement? Uh, he also took credit for inculcating, if you will, uh, slipping in all kinds of high technology into industry. Now, he didn't go to work for the uh, General Trudeau, until 1960, and he supposedly had a filing cabinet of old Roswell wreckage, and he used that so that we came up with uh, Kevlar and all kinds of things. Uh, now, I've been to the Foreign Technology Division of the Air Force, where I know some of the wreckage went in 47. Mm -hmm. The notion that nothing was done to that until Corso came on the scene is absurd. And he was part of a two-man group. I had a researcher dig out the roster for the people under Trudeau. The Foreign Technology Group had two people in it, and he was a junior officer most of the time. Uh, I've been to Wright-Patterson, and there were dozens of engineers and scientists running around there. Nobody can convince me that they had wreckage, that they did nothing with it, and it was until Phil came along, who was not an engineer or a scientist, that they finally learned something. And one thing in particular, he took credit for microcircuits. And uh, if you check, uh, the, a guy got a Nobel Prize, a physicist, 
uh, in 19, for work done in 1957 at Texas Instruments for that. Now, he didn't get involved until 1960. Yeah. Uh, another example was he talked about this scene at Fort Riley, Kansas, where his bowling buddy says, hey, you want to see something? And takes him and shows him a body, alien body in a, in a box, mm -hmm. if you will. And, you know, in the first place, it violates every rule of security. In the second place, uh, he I asked him, he said this was July the 6th. Now, if you know the Roswell story, it's very hard to imagine since that was the day that the rancher Mac Braswell came into town to Roswell. How did these bodies get up there on July the 6th? So I asked him on a radio program, uh, how do you know it was the 6th? Did you have notes or a diary or something? Well, I know when I was transferred there. That was back in March or April. That's no answer to the question. Yeah. So he, he stretched the truth. And you notice the book has no references. There's not even an index, as I recall. Uh, so uh, I was disappointed in that. Uh, I, I can't find a good excuse to think that he had anything to do with anything about that. Okay. All right. And the next one comes from Old Balls. And I apologize <laughs> for the strangeness of that one, but it's a very thoughtful question here. On he another was a bowler, of course. Uh, exactly. Yes, probably a bowler. On another radio program, you mentioned an article by Went and Duval in the journal Political yes. Theory called Sovereignty in the UFO, a groundbreaking article in the, in the academic world. Have yes. you since made contact with its authors, and are you aware of any aftermath or fallout since its publication? Well, yeah. I sent a letter. As a matter of fact, in, in one of my columns, I sent a copy of the letter that I sent to the editor of the magazine, and I got responses back from both guys and sent them copies of my books, uh, all three of them, uh, Went Duval and the editor. And it had stirred up quite a lot of discussion, which you can find on the Internet. Uh, a lot of it was sort of negative. I took them to task a little bit. Uh, for example, they said there hadn't been any scientific studies, so naturally I mentioned Blue Book Special Report 14. <laughs> yeah. And they said it hadn't been securitized or some word like that. It was a new word on me, as a matter of fact. So I pointed out that uh, it's clear that security has been invoked with the NSA and the CIA and so forth. And I forget what the third one was, but uh, I like their use of the word taboo uh, as, you know, how, that's how it's been treated. Uh, so I was pleased with the response from those people. It's about time I just ran across uh, my article, so I've got to go at it again and follow up. But there were responses, and they were not negative. Uh, now, I'm sure there were plenty of people who gave them a hard time for bringing up the subject. Judging by this physicist who calls me a well-known charlatan, a pseudoscientist, yeah, because the academics tend to shoot from the hip when they don't know anything at all about the subject. <laughs> That's for sure. Um, all right, now the next one I'm sure you can probably answer pretty quickly. Uh, this is from NYC Jeff, and he wants to know, what work have you done to establish Project Blue Book Special Report 14's legitimacy? Well, I, I've been to Project Blue Book. I got it at the University of California, sold lots of copies of it. Uh, I've got the press release that was put out. I've been to Battelle Memorial Institute. I was very impressed with the people there. So, uh, you know, what more do you want? It's an official government document. 
it's not like the MJ-12 documents, uh, and I've found that a whole bunch of those are fraudulent. I think the main ones are legitimate. So I've done, I think, everything you need to do. I, I can find no reason to say it's not a legitimate document. Yeah, maybe it might sound like this person might be confused about confusing them or something like that. I'm not sure. It's not like MJ-12, where yeah. we don't have any providence or anything like that. But, uh, okay. The final question here from the forum members comes from Richard. He's in Wales of the UK, and he wants to know, how far in space do you think mankind would be now if America had carried on to Mars after the moon in the 1970s? I think we probably would have uh, it wouldn't be American. I think Earth would have launched an interstellar vehicle. It's not that big a step. Uh, people don't realize how fast you can make progress. Look at the computer world, for example. I was using a slide rule when I <laughs> it was my first job. Ain't nobody using them anymore. Uh, and it takes a lot of work and a lot of people, and you know you get a critical mass. And but you need motivation. You need to want to do what it is you're trying to do. And then it's gung-ho, let's go with it. So I think we would have sent our first trips to other star systems. It's not that big a deal, folks. Exactly. Just look at the uh, look at the chapter here on nuclear rockets in, in the book. Yeah. Okay, well, that's it from the, from the listeners, from the forum members. So big thanks to all them for contributing, and thank you, of course, for taking the time to answer all those questions. We're here at the end of the hour here. It's almost time for people to shut off the interview and spend time with their families. I know they, they don't want to hear that. but <laughs> um, Oh, the final question I have for you, I guess, from me is, you know, you've billed this book as your magnum opus, Flying Saucers and Science. What does one do after they write their magnum opus? What's next for Stan Friedman? What can we look forward to from you in the future that maybe we'll be talking about on the fifth annual well, holiday special? Kathleen Martin and I are working on our proposal package for a new book called It's Impossible, Isn't It? Uh, all the silly things, stupid things that have been said by smart people that have stood in the way of medical progress, technological progress, maybe sociological progress. Uh, you know, space travel is utter bilge, said the uh, British astronomer Royal a year before Sputnik went up. Uh, the guys who proved, well, you couldn't fly in airplanes. That was two months before the Wright Brothers' first flight. And the medical ones are particularly distressing. How many people's lives were lost because of the resistance on the part of the big shots to new technology uh, vaccination, for one, uh, washing your hands between doing an autopsy and delivering a baby? Yeah, a guy, guy named Semmelweis ran into all kinds of problems and was kicked out of the hospital for uh, setting up a procedure to do that. <laughs> uh, and th there's a whole long list of these. Uh, the poisoning by mercury, the fact that we've let sometimes let big corporations get away with, you know, long-term poisoning when we we're always looking at short-term. Well, nobody died yesterday, so I must guess it must be okay, kind of thing. Yeah. So we're working on it. It's fascinating, frankly, and learning about the Wright brothers and their opponents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's good coverage of that kind of stuff in the book for sure, too. I look forward to seeing uh, seeing that come out. Um, now, uh, as I said, we're, we're posting this one on December 21st. Any any upcoming speaking engagements you want to mention or plug or, or uh, events or anything that you think you should, well, you should know if, about? 
If they look at my website, uh, www.stantonfriedman.com, uh, there will be all my speaking engagements. Uh, right now I can say I'll be at the International Congress on UFOs in Laughlin, Nevada for the first time. I'll be in Roswell in July. That's in February. I'll be in April. I'll be down in Florida at a conference. Uh, in May, I'll be in McMinnville, Oregon, and their annual uh, UFO event, which is great fun. Uh, in June, uh, Illinois MUFON on the 18th, 19th, 20th that weekend, we'll have a big conference where I'll be speaking. Uh, I think I'll probably be at the MUFON conference in August. Uh, and there are a few others going down the pike. So they'll be on my website, www.stantonfriedman.com. Nice. Check that out, folks. Well, Stan, I can't thank you enough for coming on here for the fourth annual holiday special. As soon as I start hearing the Christmas music on the radio, I know it's going to be time to be talking to Stan Friedman again on BOA Audio. <laughs> and I really just enjoy it every year. It's just a thrill for me to be able to talk to you. Uh, like I said, if it wasn't for you, this, this program really would never exist. The new book is Flying Saucers and Science, A Scientist Investigates the Mysteries of UFOs. It's from New Page Books. It can be found pretty much everywhere. I saw it at my Barnes & Noble last night. And I'm sure it's at the Borders and your local bookstore. Sure. Or just grab it online at Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com. But you got to get it, folks. As I said, it's required reading for anyone serious about UFO studies. And, you know, you should be able to quote those first couple chapters, uh, chapter and verse, because, uh, like I said, they'll help you defeat so many noisy negativists that you run into in your everyday world. Uh, you believe in that UFO crap, then you can just be like, well, well let me just tell you about them because I read Stan Friedman's new book, his magnum opus, Flying Saucers and Science. Outstanding book. I can't put you over enough, Stan. Looking forward already to uh, the holiday special in 2009. Thanks again so much for coming on the show. been my great pleasure, Tim. Thanks. Happy holidays. That does it for BOA Audio's fourth annual holiday special featuring the legendary Stanton Friedman. Big, big thanks to the father of modern-day ufology for joining us once again for the fourth year in a row to celebrate the holiday season. Of course, you can find out all about Stan Friedman at the website www.stantonfriedman.com S-T-A-N-T-O-N-F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N.com Check it out. Given that we're coming at you pretty late here on December 22nd, Let's askew with the listener email this week because I want to get this episode out to all the great folks who are going to be doing some traveling over the holiday season. So the faster I can wrap up this end cap, the faster I can get the episode out to you folks who are waiting for the fourth annual holiday special. We'll bring back listener feedback next week, I promise. You know the routine by now. Let's roll right into the thanks portion of the show. But this week it is a special thanks and very Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays to the outstanding BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, and Richard Thomas from Wales. They are not just the BOA staff, they are good friends of mine as well. They contribute tremendously to the website. They are a huge, huge part of our entire franchise. BOA would be a shell of what it is today without their help and support. So I thank them humbly and wish them a very Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. As we say week in and week out here at the end of the program, if you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not checking out the columns at All of America, you're only getting half of the story. All new columns coming to BOA in 2009. Stay tuned for that. BinAllofAmerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, of America.com. 
Make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Chances are, if you're sticking around here at the end of the program, you've already seen the tag up at BOA asking you to be our secret Santa. By the time you're listening to this, there'll be one or two days left in Christmas, and we're going to ask you once again to dig into your pockets and make a donation to BOA in light of the holiday season. How do you do that? Simple. Click the PayPal button at Pinal of America. It's pretty prominently displayed, so it's easy to find and click. Click that, go to PayPal, make a donation. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards keeping BOA and BOA Audio up and running and freely available for all of our great listeners and readers the world over. Wow, we are just flying through the outro here, but I'm all in favor of that. Now let's dig into the preview here of next week, and I've got an extra special surprise for you folks. Although, given our rather erratic scheduling of late, I wouldn't set your watch by our preview, but our hopes and plans are to roll out a double episode for you next week, spread out over about four or five days. This past week, I sat down with both Nick Redfern and Greg Bishop of UFO Mystic fame, and we took part in BOA Audio's first true dual interview. We've done one previous dual interview, but both the guests were actually in the same place, so it's not really a dual interview. But this time, Greg was in L.A., Nick was in Texas, I was in Boston. It was really an amazing experience and a very enjoyable marathon conversation that quickly turned into a roundtable discussion on this past year of UFO stories, both large and small. As such, we went about three hours plus. That's why we're going to split it into two. And given that it's the year-end episode, I'm going to try and get it out in total next week, spread out over a few days. On the first installment, we're going to try and get that one out to you next Tuesday. So we're definitely breaking from normal schedule. On next Tuesday's episode, or thereabouts, that's part one. We're going to be covering the first six months of the year, beginning with Nick and Greg trying to talk me down after I lament the series of UFO flops that was 2008. Then we're going to delve into some of the big stories from the first six months of the year. As you can imagine, we're going to start with Stephenville, the UFO sighting, and the subsequent mania. Then we're going to talk about the debut of UFO Hunters, the alleged UN UFO meeting that was all the rage in the springtime, the UK UFO file release, how come that story seems to keep cropping up every year, the Vatican endorsement of aliens, Jeff Peckman and the alien video, this past summer's UK UFO flap, and the 100th anniversary of the Tagunska event. Plus, we'll have remembrances of influential esoteric names, Georgina Bruna, Arthur C. Clarke, and Albert Hoffman, all of whom passed away this past year. Then, on part two, which we're hoping to get to you on or around Saturday, January 3rd or 4th, we're going to be covering the latter half of 2008. First, we're going to dissect the Edgar Mitchell UFO disclosure non-story. Then we're going to really look at the Bigfoot body bonanza of mid-August. We all know about that, the big Bigfoot body hoax. The Needles UFO incident, Blossom Goodchild's UFO non-event, the election of Barack Obama and the subsequent UFO disclosure push, and the folding of Alien Worlds magazine. Plus, we'll remember Eric Beckyord and Monsignor Corrado Balducci, who also passed away this year. Closing out the discussion, we're also going to reflect on what's hot and what's not as 2008 comes to a close, and what genres may be on the rise in 2009. Trust me, my friends, it is another amazing session for BOA Audio. An absolute marathon conversation, our first true roundtable episode. I chimed in and shared a lot of opinions on some of the past year's UFO events as well. It really turned into a free-flowing jam session with Nick Redfern, Greg Bishop, and myself.
an amazing UFO discussion and the kind of episode that you're going to look back on in 2018, 2028. You're going to look back and say, what happened in 2008? You're going to put in this double episode of BOA Audio where we illuminate all the big stories and trends of 2008 in ufology. That's next week. Double episode, special schedule for that one. Keep an eye on BOA for more information on the big year-in-review double episode with the UFO mystics, Nick Redfern and Greg Bishop. And on that note, we hang the stockings by the chimney with care, my friends. It is time to close out the fourth annual BOA Audio Holiday Special. Once again, I want to wish all of our great listeners a very Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and a fantastic holiday season. It's weeks like this that I love this gig. I love doing what I do. Thanks for tuning in once again. Enjoy the time with your family. Hope you got everything that you asked for from Santa. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, signing off.